Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm thrilled to have with us today Jeff Bortz, who is the Chief Product Officer of Blockstream. And I'm really excited for this conversation and to talk more about Blockstream in particular. Blockstream is a company that is at the frontier of development around the Bitcoin ecosystem and will cover what the new developments are there and what the new innovations are because Bitcoin's grown quite a lot over the recent years, as well as diving deeper into Blockstream and what it does. Jeff, welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much, Lex. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and excited to talk about Bitcoin and Blockstream and all all the great things that we're going to cover today. Let's start with a bit of your career and a framing of the skill sets that you developed and brought you into technology. You've spent quite a bit of time at Google in a variety of roles. Can you tell us about what pulled you into technology and sort of what your formative experiences were? I mean, I think I've always been drawn to technology and and sort of how technology can help change the world. You know, my earliest roots started in sort of the dawn of the internet. And, you know, one of the first jobs I got was helping to build sort of a dynamic website when, when that concept was still, you know, somewhat novel turned that into sort of like my chosen kind of career path. I I actually started my career as a software developer doing a handful of different, working on a handful of different technologies, but really kind of quickly swinging into web development, web services development. And I did that through kind of the dot-com boom. So uh, I got to experience that as a employee, as a a developer trying to to help build the, the first era of the internet. At some point in that process, I realized that I was more drawn to kind of like solving the higher order problems. It was, it was very fun to work on kind of narrowly defined coding problems, but but I got more interested in kind of like shaping the technology and helping to really identify the business problems that needed to get solved. So I followed a path that, that many, many developers and, and engineers follow, which is I transitioned. I, I went to business school and then I came out of that experience getting an opportunity to work as a product manager at Google. So that was in about 2007 that I that I joined Google with really kind of a plan to just be there for a few years, like learn what I could learn about, you know, working in, in a really successful and fast-paced company, and then maybe shift back into the world of, of startups, which is where I was kind of more interested in, in operating. But it, it took me 13 years to leave Google. It, it actually turned out to be a really amazing place to learn and grow and be kind of in the front seat of watching so much change in the industry unfold. And I was lucky enough to have opportunities to work across a number of products at Google. You know, I started kind of working on more business focused products in the ads organization. I moved to Android. I got to work kind of in the in the mobile world. And finally, I found my way into the, the search team and, and helped to develop Google's kind of mobile search presence. 
And each of those stages was just filled with opportunities to, to learn new technologies and to really build things that, that users were accessing at scale and, and really felt like a, a meaningful, meaningful job. So, so I found myself there for a really long time, had a, had a blast doing it. And it was only maybe the pandemic that sort of helped me start to pry myself away where I realized if I didn't change soon, I would probably be at Google for the rest of my career. And maybe I wanted to go back and try some of those other interests that I had, like working in, in smaller companies and, and helping them grow and evolve and find their footing. One thing I was always interested in, in regards to working at a large tech firm, is just what kind of skills and learnings you pick up. And this is this is coming from a place of they're finance companies and a lot of our listeners are people working in financial services or banks and they're in the tech department, you know, and they're doing fintech and it's kind of a core financial product business and then attaching a tech practice to it to get into market and sort of compete with other tech offerings. And a lot of finance companies want to now tell the story of we're tech too. You know, we have tech DNA, like we, we're a capital markets business, but really we're a technology business. But I think underneath it, we all know that there's a difference between attaching tech to a financial product and something like Google or Apple or Microsoft, you know, or Meta or NVIDIA, which at the core are real technology companies. I'd love to hear your view on that skill difference, like the difference between I'm adding fintech to building some investment funds, I don't say that lightly, versus what is the skill set, the product management skill set and broader that you pick up from working like at the core of, of a real tech company? Very good observation. I think this is absolutely a distinction that exists. And the way I try to think of it is, Maybe simplistically, you know, in some organizations, the kind of the technology team is almost viewed as like a cost center, right? Like we're going to use, we're going to deploy these resources to build something. And that something is kind of like dictated by some, you know, executives or some leaders that maybe they're looking for that edge. They can describe the edge that they want to achieve, but you know, their solution for how they might achieve that is only whatever they can conceive. So they're kind of giving like top down direction to their technology team, build X, then build Y, and the result will be Z. And they hope that that's the truth. What I find in companies where like they really view the technology investment as like their, their products are the value driver for their business. You actually have to think differently about how you organize and how you empower those teams. You really need to make them accountable to the business problems you're trying to solve. And I think that's where product management plays a really important role in the process. The product manager is really there to understand the business strategy, the business direction, the ways that you might define or measure success for business and and what role that technology is going to play in that. And then really work kind of in a collaborative way with a with a cross-functional team, including engineering, design, marketing, possibly sales and PD and others, to develop a roadmap that really takes accountability for delivering on the business goals. And so that kind of a mindset, that kind of an empowerment for that team 
I think, leads to different outcomes because the team has more autonomy, more creativity, just an ability to to take what they understand, which is that technology and the capabilities of that technology, and apply it to solve the business problem. If I say the word decentralized in this case, what, you know, what does it mean to you in terms of building products, building software products? There's an analogy there that does hold up a little bit. I mean, I think that this is where you know working in a company like Google gives me some perspective. I mean, if you try to you know pick a an aspect of of like the the consumer software experience, there's a very good chance that Google's working on it, right? I mean, they're doing everything, right? And so. When you work in a very large organization like that, where there's so many kind of big consumer products all being developed in parallel, you have to have some form of decentralization to enable all of those teams to autonomously make decisions. You cannot funnel all of that through a tight gripped, you know, central planning team or anything like that. And so Google has these kind of you know, very independent, very organic teams from within that are all pursuing their own vision, their own goal. But what you need and what I think, you know, where, where that kind of decentralization analogy is maybe challenged a bit is that you need also to ensure that you're operating with some bigger strategy, some bigger vision in mind. So you have to have something that ties those threads together in a more coordinated way. And actually, I think one of the, you know, the skills required to really be successful in a, in a large company like, like Google is to identify and recognize how the products fit together and kind of reach out and work with those different teams that are all somewhat independent and bring a measure of coordination and a measure of, hey, if we, if we put our skills together and our products together in a compelling way, users benefit. And I saw the the impact of this, you know, firsthand a couple different times, you know, in terms of how leadership could really set that direction. The first time I noticed it was when Larry Page took over as CEO of Google. And he really came in with this almost imperative that the Google product line could no longer afford to be to feel so disjointed. I mean, we had different ways that people could sign in to every different product, and like every product had its own kind of silo and feel. So it was too decentralized, if you will. But with his drive and his vision and push for, for all the teams to kind of he forced them to work together. He forced them to agree on standards and kind of common components and platforms it really leveled up the the experience across the google product line and you know it was noticeable at the time it might it might kind of take be taken for granted today another such moment i think was when maybe in the it was like 5 or 6 years ago sundar was ceo and you know he just basically declared like google is an is an ai company and we are going to focus on you know applying ai and machine learning across our product lines to improve the user experience and improve the value that we deliver. That was more of a technology mandate, but it still spurred kind of a a common effort and a common exploration across those different teams that would help, you know, motivate and, and drive us to do something that was 
you know, maybe not the trajectory we would have followed had we been just, you know, on our own. And I think that balance between empowering the product teams to explore on their own and then having a coherent vision, but not in a way that is so hierarchical and structured that it precludes innovation. That's definitely at the core of many modern tech companies. It was the case at Consensus as well. But, you know, it's also, I think when you look at traditional businesses and finance companies, it's also how a lot of sales teams are run. The unit of kind of value generation is the trading desk or the financial advisor, you know, or the portfolio manager. And very often they're run in this kind of semi-decentralized way, right? You look at Millennium, the hedge fund, and you have separate books of business that the different portfolio managers run, or you look at different trading desks with different focuses, or you look at sales in different regions. And I think this balancing is a successful pattern and structure in lots of human affairs. But let's transition maybe to to Blockstream and what brought you to Blockstream and what was interesting to you about it, as well as what is the core business of the company? When I left Google, I knew I wanted to, I had a couple of goals in mind. Like one was to transition and maybe <laughs> like step down into a, a company that was significantly smaller than Google in size. And, and in part, that was because I was interested in, you know, feeling like my own personal impact could be more significant. But also, I just felt like the the kind of the, the feel of working in a, in a smaller company was very appealing to me and something I had I'd missed for, for those many years working in, in, a, in a very large organization. And I'll be honest, I wasn't, I, I don't have a huge background or expertise in, in cryptocurrency or Bitcoin at the time. I mean, I, I was a familiar with Blockstream, I actually had some colleagues that I had worked with in the past who, who were at Blockstream. So I, I had a connection to the company. And what we found, I mean, I, I became very interested in what Bitcoin represented and what it was doing, its potential impact on the world, which is obviously like the thing that Blockstream is, is pursuing, and, and started to get deeper and deeper into how it worked and what the what the technology implications were while at the same time I was learning more about Blockstream the organization and what they needed what they where they felt like they were in their kind of growth curve and what they were looking for in terms of bringing in a product leader who could help them mature their process align a bit more cuz Blockstream actually does many many things in terms of its like sort of software portfolio better align a strategy a coherent strategy around the investments they had made. And so it felt like a really good fit where, you know, I had the opportunity to learn a lot from the company about, about a technology that I was quite interested in. And Blockstream had something to gain from my experience where I could help, you know, better organize and focus the teams and, and help us move towards achieving our business goals. And so let me tell you a little bit more about kind of Blockstream itself. You know, Blockstream is a company that does a, a few things. Like we, we have a software organization within the company that's focused on kind of advancing the Bitcoin protocol and building layer two technology that can support, you know, expanding the utility and use cases around the Bitcoin ecosystem. So things like the Lightning Network, which is kind of a, a payment channels based network for Bitcoin and Liquid, which is intended to be sort of a, a multi-asset side chain that, that works in concert with, with the Bitcoin blockchain. 
Blockstream also has mining and co-location services to support kind of securing the Bitcoin network. And we build a range of self-custody products, basically wallets, a software wallet and a hardware wallet that helps end users, you know, safely and securely hold digital assets. So the company, you know, has this sort of like broad portfolio of things that it's doing, but all of it kind of fits under like a common mission. And, and I think that that really Blockstream, I think of as a very mission-driven company. And that mission is around how can we sort of rethink the, the trust relationship that is required in financial transactions and in financial markets. Who are the biggest customers of the company? And maybe if you were to highlight the largest product lines, what would they be? So blocks, if you, you should think of Blockstream as sort of building these platforms, right? We've, we've built an implementation of the Lightning specification, one of, I think, like four kind of commonly used implementations if you want to run a Lightning node. And I think ours is like sort of the, the, maybe the second most popular one running on the network today if you, if you measured it by kind of percent of nodes running different implementations. So that's, that's largely run by people that, that are operators of the Lightning Network that want to power nodes and help you know, facilitate transactions across the network. Sometimes those are, are merchants and enterprises trying to get access to the network. The other kind of big technology investment we make in terms of like an open source platform is called Elements. Elements is basically Blockstream, Blockstream's implementation of a sidechain. And a sidechain is effectively like its own blockchain, but that's connected, linked to another chain. And in this case, Bitcoin, where basically in order to use the sidechain, you can kind of lock Bitcoin on the main chain and then unlock a representation of that Bitcoin. You could think of it a bit like kind of wrapped Bitcoin or something of that nature on the sidechain itself. And, and that becomes the native currency of the sidechain. So, so the, the liquid network is an implementation or an instantiation of this. And you could think of the liquid network as a, a customer of Blockstream's platform. The liquid network is operated by the liquid federation, which is a, a collection of 60 or 70 companies looking to, to utilize the network for operating their businesses. They could be doing things like building, like, like by like issuing various types of assets on the network that represent, you know, they could be real world assets. They could be things like stable coins, things of that nature. There's other businesses that are like facilitating, you know, trading platforms, decentralized exchanges, things like that, that, that run on the network and others that are basically using the network for its like settlement and payment benefits and we can get into some of the you know specific use cases that I think are interesting and exciting for that but but generally what blockstream is doing is power is building the technology that enables these networks to operate so a naive take would be that you are primarily a protocol company but also provide tooling for the protocols to to function and the protocols are anchored in bitcoin connected to bitcoin in some manner yeah, that's a that's a good way to describe it. And obviously those those tools and services that that run on top of the the protocols themselves are important to Blockstream because that's actually where we can, you know, as as these networks grow and and develop and get more traction, 
those tools and services, they, they further the adoption of the networks, but they also provide opportunities for Blockstream to you know, build a business on, on the back of these protocols that we've developed. If you're able to share kind of what is the scale of the liquid network or the sidechains you describe in terms of transactions and volumes and usage. And separately, I'm also, I'd love to understand, you know, to what extent these networks are programmable. You mentioned stable coins, like what's the device by which they're able to represent other assets? So first of all, let's speak a little bit to the adoption side of this. It's actually funny, like the way we've built the the liquid network, one of the key features of the network is that the transactions that happen on the network, it is a it's a blockchain, it's a public ledger, but the transactions are all blinded, which means that we neither we nor anyone else that's participating in the network can see the specific asset that's being traded in a, in a particular transaction nor the value the amount of that asset that's being traded which we think is an important feature by the way for kind of like the financial use cases that that should emerge you know down the road but that means also that we have some limited insight into kind of like the total value of assets on the network or how much of that value is moving on a given day what we can see is that you know transaction volume i think it's it's quite small when compared to something like ethereum or polygon or something like that it's it's probably in the order of tens of thousands you know in a in a month but what we've really been trying to focus on is can we increase the basis for the like sort of the value of the assets on the network and there we have a little bit more insight into who are the the parties that are issuing assets on the network, at least the ones that are doing so with significant volume. And what we've seen there is that, you know, I think by our rough estimate is that, you know, the the sort of total value locked in the network is in the billions and has actually, we've had a, a, a pretty good growth curve over the bear market, if you will, lots of investment, lots of, you know, activity, people issuing more assets and, and kind of growing their businesses despite the the overall market conditions. So we've been really encouraged by the progress that we're making there. Let's talk for a moment about the Bitcoin ecosystem. From a narrative perspective, the world is just so splintered. You know, the story of Web3 and Ethereum and Solana and applications and blah, blah, blah. There's so much stuff floating around there and there's a lot of capital that's dedicated to it. But much of that is separate from the Bitcoin story, as well as the capabilities that the network has built out through adjacent technology and firms experimenting with what's possible. And I think it's really important to focus on that. The other thing is that in the space of like institutional asset allocation, the, the capital that's flown into Bitcoin over what is now almost, I think, 14 years is by far, that's the number one destination. And if you're an institutional investor, what you're talking about is the ETF and the carry trade and breaking the trust and the institutional money flows into Bitcoin as a proxy for all the rest of that early stage stuff. So it's kind of a really weird divide in my view between what a lot of the technologists are talking about versus what capital is talking about. So for that reason, I want to open up a bit more where Bitcoin is today. Let me ask maybe, you know, if you reflect on 2009 and the launch of the network, 
what do you think Bitcoin got right? And what do you think it got wrong? And I know that's dangerous to say, what did it get wrong? But, you know, we've had now 14 years of, you know, 100% uptime, trillions in volume, billions in market cap. What did Bitcoin get right? And what did it get wrong? That's a really tough one to play armchair quarterback on. <laughs> and also, let me let me also just say something to the, the point that you just made about the divide, I think, like almost like the, the, the tribalism that I think we see in the in the cryptocurrency ecosystem at large, you know, I dropped into this really my, my exposure to this started in like 2021. And I think a lot of this sort of segregation of, of thinking had already really kind of calcified at that point. And so it's almost been, it's been very shocking to me to kind of witness it more kind of up close and, and see how, you know, these like sort of like strongly held beliefs are, are like, driving and, and div- almost like dividing the, uh, the approaches that, that are being taken within the market, particularly between Bitcoin, I think, and, and most everything else. I think it's, it's dangerous. I think it's kind of sad that, that like, there's a bit more closed-mindedness uh, across that that, that that might prevent, I think, like, the best ideas from blossoming and, and from you know, being adopted and embraced more across the board. I think that's, you know, not necessarily a net positive for the industry. And maybe if I'm <laughs> jumping ahead to kind of what, what things, where, where things went wrong, the roots of that, I don't fully understand, but, but I think like that does feel like a sort of a net loss for, for the ecosystem that, that things have evolved in that way. But moving back to the, the, the genesis of Bitcoin, I mean, I think it has a very unique origin story. It's probably been repeated over and over again, but the fact that it was, you know, to me, Bitcoin really represents sort of like the cryptocurrency that has actually moved farthest down the limb of decentralization, right? They have, they have actually managed to, to sort of exist without, without even like a, a, a known creator. And that, you know, the fact that like Bitcoin, the distribution of Bitcoin has basically started from the point of, you know, whoever learned about the technology and started mining it, they, they sort of like earned the first Bitcoin. And, and I think it has these kind of roots in really like establishing what decentralization means, the ethos of decentralization. And obviously, I think, you know, its track record in terms of uptime and its, its resilience indicates that sort of the, the game theoretic conditions that were part of the design of Bitcoin really work. They are you know, fundamentally sound. And that makes the the network itself sound, which, you know, I think is really what the, if you know, what the design of Bitcoin was, was aspiring to do. Obviously, Bitcoin has, I think, sacrificed quite a bit to achieve its kind of like, or establish its, its like decentralization position. You know, there's there are things that famously like the block size wars where there were different pressures being applied that could have steered Bitcoin in different directions. The priority at that time and the priority even today is on ensuring that Bitcoin is a true peer to peer network that has, you know, really minimal centralization influences. There are always centralization threats and things that can creep in. And I do think a big 
priority for Bitcoin developers is to continue to keep those minimized. And so that's, I think that's a very different design philosophy, an interesting design philosophy that, that Bitcoin has chosen. It's also obviously a very conservative approach. And I think you see that conservatism reflected in how Bitcoin functionality evolves as well, which is to say at a very slow pace. You know, obviously things that can improve the security of the network are embraced. Things that can expand the functionality of the network are looked at with skepticism, with hesitation, just like a, a deliberation that that I think is part of the process of ensuring that in the end, we don't upset the apple cart. We don't we don't undermine the kind of the fundamentals because Bitcoin is definitely, you know, driving at that, you know, store of value, sound money use case first and foremost. And and really that cannot be sacrificed, I think, in the mind of, of a Bitcoiner. Let's talk about the ways then that the network has expanded over the years. Maybe we can start with Lightning and sort of the history of that and what the market and usage looks like today. I'd love to talk about the Ordinals ecosystem down the line as well, but maybe we just open up Lightning and explain its fundamentals. Sure. So, I mean, I think the the genesis of Lightning and the reason that that Lightning became a, a project that was embraced in the in the Bitcoin community was, you know, obviously if you're going to take this like extreme stance on on sort of the scalability fact like limit limiting the scalability factors of bitcoin by ensuring that it remains this like fully decentralized peer-to-peer network then you you need some answer for how the network can scale and meet kind of like the growing demands like broader adoption and so you know this is actually an area that you know from the earliest days of blockstream's inception we've been thinking about this problem. It's the motivation for why we started, you know, working on side chains, published a, a side chain white paper in I think 2015, something in that time frame, and also got involved very early on in in lightning building one of the first lightning implementations because we've been looking at ways to help bitcoin base layer kind of stay true to its purpose and and still expand kind of like the the feature set and functionality that would be capable on the network through layer two solutions. So Lightning is basically a way to, you know, establish a contract between two parties on the base chain that then you can use to essentially aggregate, batch a number of, of payments between those two parties before you finally settle that on chain. And then the, the way the Lightning Network works is that you can actually route payments between a series of these counterparties to reach kind of like anyone else who's on the network and, and finally like basically process a transaction, process a payment that can settle much faster than like the Bitcoin main chain transactions can settle and, you know, can also, you know, not incur the the Bitcoin main chain transaction fees with each with each payment, instead, you, you kind of like distribute those transaction fees over a number of payments, sort of batch them up so that you, you in theory, have a, a lower cost solution for, for payments at scale. The network has really 
matured over the years. There's been a lot of investment you've seen in terms of, you know, number one, developer, developers getting involved and, and working on solutions, building applications on top of the Lightning Network, really trying to like turn it into, I think, a, a network that's dependable for kind of payments at scale. And it's a little, it's another one of these things that's a, a little hard to measure because of the sort of privacy properties of the Lightning Network. It's hard to actually know how many transactions occur on a, on a given day. So people look at other metrics to kind of understand the, the growth curve of it, such as how much liquidity exists in the network, basically how many channels have been opened, how much Bitcoin is represented in those channels to understand, you know, is more and more money pouring into this network. That number has grown. And I think, I think most of us who, who develop on the Lightning Network believe it, it sort of undercounts the, the total growth of the network because at the same time, we've managed to be more efficient with that liquidity. We can actually route more payments with requiring less kind of liquidity to be locked in the network. And so I have seen estimates, which I, I, I cannot attest to their validity, but, you know, of like, you know, up to like a thousand percent growth in the past year, just in terms of the, the footprint and the uh, activity on the network. Certainly, it feels from kind of working in the industry that a lot of progress has been made. And yet there's still, you know, more to go because the, the user experience and the reliability and everything else still needs to, to be up leveled. That's a key question of how do people avail themselves to to using this stuff? Like, is it integrated into all the different wallets? Or is it institutional players are likely to use the network, but for the average user, they'll still use the native functionality? Like, where do you see adoption? It's kind of across the board still. And, and I think that actually the, like the, the full extent of where the Lightning Network will prove valuable to Bitcoin and Bitcoin users has not really been established. One thing I think we've seen is that, you know, there's, there's kind of a mix of ways you can use the Lightning Network. Many users will basically, you know, connect to an app like there's an app called, famous app called the Wallet of Satoshi. It's custodial, which means that, you know, you, you load some Bitcoin into your balance in this app, and then you are on a, a Lightning node that is shared by essentially all of the users of Wallet of Satoshi. Your funds are commingled with theirs, but you, you, it, the app keeps track of your balance and you can spend freely. And, and that has some benefits in terms of convenience and user experience because the, the end user basically gets, you know, doesn't have to incur the costs of opening channels on the network or closing channels. The node operator can really focus on on reliability and finding good routes through the network and making sure that that all payments succeed and it effectively becomes a very useful like micropayment solution if you try to do the same thing for a user who wants to sort of self custody on the network they want to use a wallet there and there do exist wallets as well including blockstream's own blockstream green that enable kind of non custodial use of the lightning network that's more costly because now you at least have to incur the kind of on-ramp and off-ramp costs of locking your Bitcoin and unlocking your Bitcoin on the main chain in order to use the Lightning Network. And that has a, an expense associated with it. So, so there's kind of like this range of things. And, and I think, you know, given that using Lightning in a non-custodial way is not super cheap, I do believe that 
much like kind of Bitcoin main chain transactions over time, that's going to gravitate to more kind of enterprise use cases. And I think, you know, the, the real value of Lightning is in its settlement capabilities. And so I think we will see over time kind of an expansion of the ways that Lightning is used to help enterprise entities settle and transfer value, you know, cross borders and, you know, in commerce situations and things like that, where really fast confirmation times are, are valuable. Intuitively, that feels correct. I know that there's a lot of enthusiasm by fintech players as well about Lightning as a payments infrastructure that is very, very high in trust. You know, so while there's lots of interesting stuff going on with Ethereum-based stable coins and so on, you do reduce the levels of decentralized trust the further out you go, the smaller the networks you use. You know, so if you end up on Tron and then you end up in Terra Luna, you might have some interesting payments characteristics, but you've given up, you know, a, a thousand times percent improvement in trustworthiness, which is what you get on Bitcoin. What about ordinals and inscriptions? I think in many people's minds, Bitcoin is digital gold. You you buy it, you hold it, it has volatility, you know, occasionally it goes up in value as the Fed prints more money. But there's also been kind of programmability and some version of NFTs that have found implementations on the Bitcoin network. Can you talk about what that is, like how it works, and sketch out the the ecosystem? Sure. I'll try to give you kind of like a, a maybe like a non-technical overview of this, because uh, if we were to get too deep into the technology, I'd, I'd probably start getting my wires crossed anyways. Effectively, the trend around ordinals is basically a a way to almost prescribe a a serial number to each Satoshi that's ever been mined or minted on the Bitcoin network. And combining that with a capability that exists to kind of inscribe some information on any given transaction output in in the Bitcoin network you can create kind of like a, a numbering system and, and a, a reference to other types of assets that can be then represented on the Bitcoin chain and then transferred around just as you would trade any other any other Bitcoin. It's kind of funny to me, like there's there's quite a bit of, of like controversy around this development on Bitcoin. And I think in part it's because like, oh, well, maybe this wasn't a use case that was anticipated or or like, you know, really maybe even properly accounted for when, when people were thinking about how this network would be used originally. And, you know, it, it has actually had quite an impact on the market around like sort of demand for block space on, on Bitcoin. So some people feel like it's crowding out the block space that could be used to actually transfer Bitcoin. Now you're transferring these other assets instead, and it's driving up the fee market on Bitcoin as well. Some of that is like, really good for the network. It's it's good to have a healthy fee market. It's good for Bitcoin miners. It, it, it drives more incentives and, and it creates more demand. And and then others others would say, no, 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 we <laughs> we want that demand to be, you know, utilized by like sort of like a more pure use case. My my perspective is it's a it's an open market, right? I mean nobody gets to decide how that block space should be used. It's it's basically allocated on an auction basis. And so these use cases have emerged that that are driving interest. And I think that's probably a net positive for the Bitcoin network in terms of 
bringing more developers in, opening people's eyes to the fact that, you know, Bitcoin has a bit more programmability, a bit more kind of capabilities, you know, than maybe people had imagined. And there's there's a number of different efforts now to essentially mint assets on the Bitcoin blockchain. And I think we'll have to see how how some of these play out. So there's, you know, there's basically the the ordinals or I guess the inscriptions kind of process that's been somewhat integrated with a solution called Taproot Assets, which is a way to kind of define stable coins and other other assets that can essentially be traded across the Bitcoin network. There's more longstanding protocol efforts like RGB that, that attempt to do the same thing. And these have all, they're all kind of like still, I'd say in early stages, but the level of intensity and enthusiasm for for the ordinals and the inscriptions has, I think, surprised a lot of us in terms of like how much it's changed the fee market on Bitcoin and, and how much actual demand there is, you know, for people to to build on this network. What are the other potential paths that you see in the Bitcoin developer community that are coming to fruition? You know, we talked about enabling large enterprise payments potentially with lots of trust behind it. We talked about sort of enthusiasts starting to put data into the chain in new ways and being able to embed images and even websites and kind of nested HTML tables and all sorts of other weird stuff. What are the other things on the horizon that are exciting for you or for Blockstream? Well, I mean, I'm really excited about kind of like what I think is the the ongoing evolution of of like the financial markets in general. So one one thing that we really internalize at Blockstream is the amount of trust required for parties to interact to to conduct financial transactions today. Like think of something like the capital markets and think of all the different intermediaries that participate in facilitating the trade of an asset. There are so many like roles uh, across the the marketplace that that sort of intermediate that transaction and and tolls and rents that those those players extract and if you kind of step back you realize that had a technology such as blockchains existed you know from the outset a lot of those roles and tolls would not be necessary and so it feels like there's this opportunity to kind of reinvent or rethink the way financial use cases can be deployed and 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 work at scale and a lot of what we're doing at blockstream you know our investments in the liquid network in terms of the, the underlying technology is meant to enable kind of a trust a form of trust minimized finance to to unfold and so things like enabling two people to execute a trade atomically with no no need to trust your counterparty and have all the verifiable verifiability guarantees that the the kind of distributed ledger enables can really create a more kind of i think like equitable financial system one where you know people don't have to go through these these large kind of centralized coordinators to to actually participate in in that economy. That's kind of like the area that I think like represents an opportunity, but you know, it's the the path that we would have to take to get from kind of like the systems that exist today to that world, I think is still somewhat unclear. It's like a 
the, the how how this adoption story unfolds, I think, is a matter of of debate and and interest from my point of view. If our listeners want to find out more about you or about Blockstream, where should they go? Well, I would encourage them to go to blockstream.com. That's where you know a lot of our kind of work is highlighted and featured. You can see a lot of the work we do on the research side to advance both the Bitcoin protocol and our, our other layer two efforts. And you can see more about the, the products that we're developing that we look for to be kind of part of the, the next wave of, of financial infrastructure. And then we also have, you know, you can find more information about Liquid at liquid.net and more kind of like developer community information at a website called buildonlayer2.com. Amazing. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Lex, thank you for having me. I I enjoyed the conversation. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.